You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 12. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, follows seamlessly, I believe, on the heels of this statement. Now, this is, it's precisely here that the critics of James say, you see, James is just a hodgepodge of ideas. He goes from this grand thesis about true religion to some trivial thing about seating patterns at the local synagogue. I mean, what is on his mind? You know, Emily Post or, or who is it? You know, Martha Stewart. I mean, is he, was he influenced... You know, centuries ahead of the time, what is the deal here? But in fact, the deal here is he's really going to illustrate for us what true religion is. He paints a little picture. The synagogue slash church service has just begun. Maybe you can think of your church. Maybe your church is crowded sometimes. And every last seat is full. In the ancient world, the synagogue's in Israel were small. And the house churches would maybe hold at the most 100 people. And so they'd get jammed. And, and the place is full, and there's about room for just about nobody left. But two people come in simultaneously. And one of them is rich. You can tell. Just look at his clothes. Just look at the rings on his fingers. And the other one is poor. They shout it by their perhaps bare feet in their shabby dress. And the person who's there to... Uh, seat people shows favoritism. He tells it this way. He says, suppose that that person space, pays special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and says, here's a good seat for you. Sit well over here, he says literally. But to that poor man, he says, you stand over there or you sit here at my feet. And the word that's used for at my feet is even a word used for a footstool. Like Jesus, he will put all his enemies as a footstool under his feet. Sit here at my feet so I can put my feet on you as you're there at the bottom. That's favoritism. The Greek word for favoritism is, comes from two different words that are face and reception. It says don't receive somebody based on their face. Don't treat somebody on the basis of their outward appearance. In this case, it's whether your clothes are good or not. But we could, we could fit in any other form of outward appearance here, treating people according to the way they look. Somebody actually did a, a survey of this a while ago. Dress for Success did it. And they, they took a man in New York City and they dressed him in identical ways. They put him in front of the same hotel with the same line. I've lost my wallet. All my ideas gone. I have a ticket. I need to get home. Would you please loan me the money for a taxi fare to get to the airport? He asked it all day long. Same city, just two consecutive days, same clothes, same man, same words. One day he wore a beige raincoat. 
The other day he wore a, a dark and slightly shabby raincoat. Got twice as much money the day he was wearing the new beige raincoat. Twice as much money. Everything else was the same. Now, you know, we could do the same thing. And it's not consistent with our profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, it's an odd beginning to it. He says, my brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ don't show favoritism. The Greek is even more strange than that. It says, don't hold your faith with favoritism would be a way of translating it. You can't have faith in Christ and favoritism at the same time because Jesus didn't play favorites. Before Jesus, everybody's the same, rich or poor, see. Everybody's exactly the same, that is, totally needy. Totally in need of his mercy, totally in need of his grace. He doesn't care. And with whom did he associate? He associated with, with Jews and with Gentiles and Samaritans, with males and females. He had dinner with rich tax collectors, rich scabby outcast tax collectors, and with prostitutes, and with Pharisees, and with ordinary people. He would associate with anybody because they were all the same before him. And so it's, in, it's impossible to, to mix, logically impossible to mix favoritism and faith. But there's even more to it than that. This little scene, this tiny little scene about who gets to sit where, in fact, gives you all three tests of true religion. Because the tests are, what are they again? Look at the three tests. The tests are controlling your tongue. Well, here's a person who did not control his tongue. In fact, he used his tongue to give one more jab at the poor person. The poor person is already beaten down enough. You think if any place would get good treatment, it would be the church. But even the church, he's told, sit here at the bottom, be nobody, stand over there, sit at my feet. And what's the second test? Caring for widows and orphans in their distress. That means caring for the poor, the outcasts, those who can't take care of themselves. So here it is, the church. And he could, you could care for the poor by giving them dignity, by giving them a good seat, by talking respectfully. But even at the church, this usher fails to show kindness to the man who's poor. Keeping oneself unstained by the world, this is the epitome of worldliness. To curry favor, to notice who has the funds, to notice who has the power, do them a favor, maybe they'll notice. Maybe they'll do me a favor back. That is the epitome of worldliness. And so by this simple act, this trivial act, true or false religion is revealed. That kind of relates to a saying. You know, the true gentleman is the one who uses the right fork when no one is watching. It's the trivial things that disclose whether our faith is genuine or not. That's why he begins. And then he sets us straight. Chapter 2, verse 5 and following, he says, You know, God has chosen, I read this before, those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. You've insulted the poor. Don't you realize the poor aren't the ones harming you? It's the rich who exploit you. They're not doing you favors. You're not going to win their, win their favor. They're slandering Christ. Truth is, you should, now verse 8, keep the royal law found in Scripture. Now, what he's doing with this little phrase, royal law, has to be attended to. He's saying, this whole business about favoritism, 
And now he's going to quote, love your neighbors yourself. This isn't just some little law or some little rule. It's the law of the king. It's the law of God. It's the law of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There is no trivial law. If you keep that law, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you're committing a sin and you're a lawbreaker. Then he raises the stakes in verse 10. He says, in fact, if you even show favoritism, even if you keep the whole law and yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. He goes on to elaborate. He says, it's because the same person who said don't commit adultery also said don't steal and don't lie and all the rest. What he's saying is there's a unitary nature to the will of God. And if you say I'll pick and choose between the commands of God, that's impossible because it's the word of God. If you pick and choose what you'll obey, you're rebelling against God who says it's all my law. Again, there's a unitary character. Let's see if we can just probe this for a minute. Uh, together, let's just uh, suppose that you tell a lie. Let's suppose that you say, "This is we might," or you slander somebody, which is kind of what's happening here. You're poor, so sit in the corner, and I'll slander you. But let's slander is a form, sort of, of lying. So let's say you tell a lie. What sin? What command are you violating? Do you know your commands in order? You know which one? Thou shalt not bear false witness is. Seventh, eighth, ninth. I've heard every number. I'm pretty sure it's the ninth. That's my recollection. Maybe I should have checked. Someone want to check and make sure it's the ninth? All right. It's the ninth. I think it's the ninth. Okay. So you'd say, I've just violated the ninth commandment. But in fact, if you're in church, and the church is the body of Christ, and we all owe each other respect and dignity and kindness, Right? And it's sort of a bond among all Christians. We're all brothers. If you don't give dignity to your brother, who is your peer, part of the same community, you've been unfaithful to him, haven't you? You haven't kept the implicit vow to treat each other well, have you? So you've broken the seventh commandment, which is don't commit adultery. It basically means be faithful to your relations, your social relations. And then, of course, it's murderous, isn't it? You're murdering their spirit. How would you feel? If you came in at the same time, there's one seat left, and the usher looked you both over and said, okay, you get the good seat, and you sit underneath my chair. Or you stand way back in the corner behind the pillar. It wounds the soul. And so it's a form of murder. And certainly it dishonors that person, doesn't it? And since behind the fifth commandment is the idea that we should give honor to all who deserve honor, it violates that one. Clearly, it violates the third commandment because the third commandment says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we're all Christians. We're all Christians. So wherever we go, we bear the name of Christ. And if we bear the name of Christ and yet use our tongue to put others down and not welcome people into our church, then it implies that God in Christ is not a Christ who welcomes all people and treats all people well. It's a kind of a lie about Christ, because we image or reflect Christ to the world. Certainly, it's a violation of the first and second commandments, because they tell us to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you treat people like this, and God has told you not to, you're not loving God. And I've only gotten started. 
The truth is, you could take almost every command and see that all the commands are interwoven. They're interwoven because each act of sin violates God and it violates other people. Furthermore, every deliberate sin is an act of rebellion against the lawgiver and king. That's his main point. If you break the law, it's the royal law. You're breaking the law of the one who said, the same God who said, don't commit adultery, said don't commit murder. He's the author of the whole law. He goes on to warn. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law. That gives freedom. It does give freedom, but it can also judge you if you don't heed it. It sounds so very harsh. In fact, this chapter is, is something we all need because we're all guilty of these things. And yet, on the other hand, it can bring us down. It can make us grieve and think, well, now I'm, it kind of raised the stakes on us, didn't it? Basically, what James just did was say, if you're not perfectly obedient, you're not obedient at all. We don't like that. We like better to think, you know, how about 70% obedience? Isn't that good enough? But before God, in, you know, and in the world, some things are all or nothing, right? You can't be a little bit pregnant. You are or you're not. And in sports, you know, you either make the shot or you don't. A basketball shot that goes in and out doesn't count more than one that is an air ball. You missed. That's all. And if you hit a ball 480 feet down the left field line and it hooks foul, it's strike one. You don't get any credit for it. And obedience to God is like that sometimes. It's an all or nothing affair can't pick or choose. And so we could feel the weight of our condemnation. But then the last word is just this, yet mercy triumphs over judgment. It's almost as though James knew how this could be taken. He said, but you know, one more thing. Mercy does triumph over judgment. You may sin. You may violate the law. But I want to tell you one last word. If you're feeling condemned all by all this, the last word is mercy. Mercy triumphs. We will be judged. But on the last day, the word of judgment will be trumped by the word of Christ, who is the Lord, even the Lord over those who sin this way. They've turned to him in faith. Say, so yes, true, guilty. But my mercy will cover their sin. So James ends his first Great discourse on what faith is. Faith then has these marks. Perseveres in trial, grows through trial, and it shows itself. Real faith will show itself. Broadly, those three signs, and then in little things that disclose in quiet ways whether we are or are not enacting those signs. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.